Welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. We have an excellent show ahead. We've got a couple of stories uh, involving wind turbine wakes and some research and modeling that's been done about um, yeah how, how long wakes persist from Arcvera and also how the wind turbine wakes interact with each other and um, some research on optimizing overall output of wind farms that's come out of MIT. And then we'll discuss some work from Sandia Labs on offshore vertical axis wind turbines and the implications of that design. And last but certainly not least, we'll talk about what Michigan State is doing when uh, diving into some recyclable resins and creating edible gummy bears from wind turbine blades. (laughs) It's going to be a great show. Stay tuned. We'll be back after the music. Right, wake turbulence is becoming a more frequent topic in the wind energy community, and it, it seems kind of obvious that when wind turbines spin around, there's probably creating wakes. But I don't think we understood how big those wakes are, or how big those wakes are going to be, particularly when we get offshore and we start talking about 10, 12, 15 megawatt machines. Well. ArcVera has been looking at it, and ArcVera has done some analysis on it and predictions. Actually, more than predictions. They've actually set up a test case in Iowa. So ArcVera uh, predictions are on offshore up to one meter per second drop in wind speeds due to upstream tip vortices, essentially, that are moving downstream and, and, and disturbing the airflow for the subsequent wind turbines. And that's on a on a big twelve megawatt machine, and that's you know roughly a ten percent drop in the wind speeds, which is significant. So you can see a ten percent drop in in output. And I know we talked about Dominion Energy on their offshore project having a a uh, capacity factor around forty two percent, and I and Rosemary and I both agreed that that seems a little maybe aggressive because of things like this, the unknown unknowns. Well, Arcvera is saying, hey. These, these wake losses are, are, are going to be significant and not and not just immediately around the wind turbine, which is creating them, but like 100 kilometers downwind, there's going to be these significant wakes. And I think that's new. Now, the, the piece that I haven't heard before and I, is uh, the testing they did in, in Iowa. So they validated in Iowa and it says on the onshore validation study that uh, ArcVera conducted in Iowa, wakes were found to travel over 40 kilometers over land in stable atmospheric conditions. Wow, that's a long ways. In American terms, that's like uh, 25 miles, roughly. That's like the next town over. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a lot of uh, uh, wake vortices. And Rosemary, you talked to Jessica O'Connor when we were down at uh, American Clean Power in San Antonio. And as Jessica gave us gave you some really good insights about this, you want to describe what all the all the knowledge she laid on you? Yeah, so I mean, and people can maybe we put in the show notes if we do those. I'm not sure we can put a link to that yeah, previous will. episode because that was sure. really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, she explained about their model that they're doing, and uh, I mean, so it's no no surprise to anybody in the industry that there's a wake a wake behind a, a wind turbine, slower slower and more turbulent wind um, behind the wind turbine than in front. 
Um, yeah, we're all aware that we're <laughs> extracting energy from the wind after all. But what was surprising about their um, their simulation results when they applied it to offshore, they applied um, the simulations that they frequently do onshore and they validated, as you said, um, in, yeah, uh, I can't yeah. remember where it was, some some American town, <laughs> and found that the wake persists um, quite a long way. Um, what they did was applied it to uh, the model to an offshore um, site, and it's in it's where there was that recent auction in in the US around in New Bikes. York area, right? Yeah, yeah. York. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've just parceled up this bit of I always want to say land. It's not land, but this uh, ocean area they've parceled it up, um, and you, there's ton a ton of uh, wind farm projects that are being developed there now, and they're packed pretty close together. You, you know, they, they've really just um, yes. divided it up like they're dividing up fields. It's not like they've left large bits of um, space in between them. And that um, research showed that the wake persists much, much, much further than what people probably expect and i mean obviously we don't have access to the the financial models of everybody who bid in that auction but um it seems hard to believe that they would be expecting such extreme losses and so yeah a 10 percent reduction in wind speed at a down downwind wind farm it, it yields more than a 10 percent reduction in um, power output right because the power in wind varies yeah, with the does. cube of the wind speed so it's more like that's true 25 nearly 30 percent um lo- uh, yeah loss and it's not wow. it's not obviously it depends on the wind wow. direction but there is a really um you know a prevailing wind direction that is uh, accounting for most of the the money that the the wind farm expects right. to make and i mean the results that she said it, it one meters per second was not the most extreme by any any means. That might be a very common um, amount of reduction to see, but you know there were examples where you could see like I think even four meters per second. It was it was incredible. Wow. So the where the simulation is up up to at the moment, it's validated with the onshore um, model. So offshore is quite different. We don't know how accurate it's going to turn out to be. But it's certainly, you know, it's um, this kind of simulation can give you the the bounds of what you might expect. And I think if sure. you're a project developer, you, you really do want to try and find the worst realistic case that, you know, could happen. Um, because, yeah, if you're going to consistently see 25, 30 percent less power than what you're expecting. I mean, I don't know many business cases that have more fat in them than, than that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it could be. It could be really, really significant and, um, yeah, it's something for developers to be aware of and maybe also when they are sectioning off these bits of ocean, maybe we'll need to leave some (laughs) more space in between wind farms in the future. Right, right. Mm. And, Joel, you and I have been working on a a couple of projects here looking at vortices off of blades. What comes out of the manufacturer the, the tip vortices can be pretty substantial, just a clean, brand new blade. Yeah. And, and so for the listeners out there that aren't uh, 100% sure of what we're talking about, if you've ever seen a LinkedIn or a Facebook or a YouTube video of a turbine that's on fire and you can see the smoke curling around, right? That's what we're talking about is the wind blows through and you can see that form behind behind the structure itself. Now we're talking about those things 
of course, it's not going to be a you know a tube of just this one little vortice. It'll f- affect all the air around it, and if the, the you know if there's a right. bigger array in the wind farm, you're going to affect larger weather patterns. So um, you know from those small like Alan, like you're saying, those the vortices that we see on the tips. Uh, you know, and we look at CFD models quite regularly, and you're looking at things down to you know the size of your cell phone changes. So much of that in a large wind farm, especially when we're talking 100 meter blades, uh, 100 meter plus blades, uh, that extrapolates and becomes a lot, lot larger. Uh, so to the right. one point I was thinking about while you guys were talking, now, you know, we know that we've seen studies of the highest wind term. I think the wind turbine we ever saw was that one study in Germany where they're going to put them up 250 meters in the air. Most right. of them right. – Onshore, 80 meters, 100 meter tower height. That's all you're going to really be. Uh, offshore, 150 or so just to get, you know, so the blades aren't slapping the waves. Um, but do you think, and maybe Rosemary, this is a question for you, that th- these this, these wakes, these massive amount of wakes and disturbances that these wind farms can create, could they affect weather patterns at a, at a minute scale? Yeah, I mean they must, right? Uh, because they are yeah. taking energy out out of the wind. They're slowing slowing the wind and and changing it. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, yeah, and it is a question that comes up pretty often. Um, it's one thing that often climate change deniers try to <laughs> try to throw out there. Is, uh, you know, oh, you're going to change the the weather worse with wind turbines taking all the energy out of the wind. And, and they say it about solar panels too, which is a bit more of a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, we're going to take all this energy out of the the sun and the um, and the wind, and we're going to affect you know climate worse than fossil fuels. And I yeah. mean, definitely the scale is not remotely. <laughs> not remotely the exactly. same yeah. um no. yeah but i i do see from time to time studies that that show you know effects on on local weather but it's always so it's so so hard to get good controls for that kind of um for a natural phenomenon kind of work. yeah, Sim- yeah right. and simulations you know they need to it's like that you know a butterfly flaps its wings in Australia and yeah. you get a, a drought in, I don't know, in China or yeah. <laughs> something, whatever, whatever the typical example is, you, the, the weather's, weather's chaotic and, and complicated. Yep. So it's hard to, um, to simulate it. Um, yeah. And it reminds me well, a bit of, um, you know, like the rain shadow thing. I know that there was some cases in the, some yep. legal cases in the U S where mm-hmm. someone who was seeding clouds to get more rainfall, um, on their farm, was sued by the downwind farm. It's like you've stolen my rain, <laughs> and now I don't have I don't have the crop yield, and I want retribution. Um, yeah. And y- yeah, it's like y- you can say yes, cloud seeding has a statistical impact. Very hard to say exactly, precisely where and what, <laughs> um, and you know, quantitatively. And I think it's the same with the wind. Yes, we know there's some energy taken out of the wind. It's going to have some effect, but it's we're not yet at the point where we can pinpoint yeah. and say exactly what. And it's certainly not on the scale of you know all the CO two emissions in the right, in the right, atmosphere right. causing climate change. So the last question and thought I have there is. Okay, now that we're getting closer to, you know, quantitative, you mentioned it, right? Now that we're getting closer, closer to possibly quantitatively measuring some of this stuff, in, in, in mind of the 42% um, uh, numbers that we saw with Dominion, do you see the possibility in the future or now or in the future of wind farm operators suing each other if they're upwind or downwind taking production away? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, and so, yeah, that that's what I immediately thought of. Um, <laughs> American wind farmers suing other American wind farmers yeah. because I know that they've done it with the cloud seeding. Um, but I think that it would be kind of fair enough to sue if you had an offshore wind farm and then a few years later somebody got allocated one um, upwind of you, uh, you know, put in a big wind farm and then, yeah. I mean, you would be able to document a decrease if yours was there first. Um, I think that sure. would be kind of fair enough because when you committed to this project and whatever you're paying for access to that that space, you know, you did it with without the knowledge that there was going to be someone upstream, um, upwind. But with the yeah, the recent auctions, they were all done at once, so they know that these other wind farms are going to be in there. So then I, I would really say that's just on them if they didn't understand the issue properly. Whose fault is it but theirs? And yeah. it really seems likely that they didn't understand. Yeah, I'm thinking about like in the North Sea right now where you have, uh, you know, some of the historical, the first wind farms offshore, six megawatts and five megawatts and eight megawatts. And then, you know, 10 years later, they get a what we're looking at now, the V236 or whatever it is, that's 15 megawatts gets thrown up in front of them. Mm. It's going to take it going to start messing up the, the smaller ones downstream. Yeah, For sure. definitely. I think there's there's there's. I think leading edge erosion is a big deal in terms of vortices. Yeah. Some of the the quieting pieces we add, VGs will spin the air and probably suck a little energy out of the air more than they would otherwise. I think you could, in, in theory, put some requirements on what kind of vortices your wind turbine can generate and at what point do you need to go out and fix leading edge erosion. If you think about a wind turbine blade versus an aircraft wing, there's a lot of work done on aircraft wings in the last 20 years on tip vortices and, and knocking them down somewhat. And I think Boeing and Airbus have done a really good job of doing that. But you don't see that translate into the wind area very little, almost not at all. Yeah. But if, there, if you're talking about 100 kilometers of weight vortices in the wake you create, you'd want to try to minimize as much as you could. Would you then put in rules to force the upstream wind turbines to have vortex mitigation? I think you could probably a, could. I could be a great marketing that. strategy for one of the OEMs, right? Hey, we sold our turbines to these guys yeah. and we reduced the tip vortices. You guys should buy ours too because then we're all going to be in line with this. Making more money, right? Yeah, you don't yeah. want to destroy the next guy. That's not helpful, right? Because right. Rosemary's right. You'll be in court forever. And that's not, yeah. and that's not a good place to be. But I, I think Arc Ferry is, is bringing really good data to this and, and – at least getting the discussion in place before we have a couple thousand wind turbines off the coastline and realize we have a big problem. So if you're, if you're one of those companies that are putting wind turbines off the coast of New York, you may want to talk to Jessica O'Connor or Ark Farah and get the details of the study. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. 
So a new study out of MIT, and if you've, if you've been following LinkedIn news reels of the last couple of, of, of days, you'll see this article pop up a lot. And it's in the Boston Globe and a number of other periodicals. It's talking about MIT looking at essentially wake steering, the direction you take a, a wind farm, each of the wind turbines, if they're operated to maximize their power individually, you will get a certain amount of output from the farm. If you think about the, the turbines as part of a larger system, you may not want all your wind turbines pointing directly into the wind to maximize the output. Well, some engineers at MIT will, have been looking at this over in India and have run a couple of studies on it and on a, on a decent-sized wind farm. And what they're saying, Rosemary, is you can increase in certain situations power up, but by up to 32%. But overall, it's about 15 to 3% in real terms from most situations. Uh, and I, this seems like new knowledge. I'm not sure this is really new, is it? No, it's funny because this is a topic that pops up over and over again. And uh, I, I'm always surprised at how uh, popular it becomes, you know, in quite mainstream media. Um, really, right. really similar variations on the same theme. The last one that I uh, saw reported heaps, even more than this one, was some study that um, was done on vertical axis wind turbines and found that you could, you know, put them closer together than you can um, horizontal axis wind turbines. And uh, that particular study, the vertical axis wind turbine one, was, you know, like it was so, 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 so preliminary. It was, you know, two-dimensional analysis. They used three wind turbines. They used just a couple of um, different angles of 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 wind and it's, you know, not validated mm. with anything in the real world. So, um, yeah, I won't get too, in too much into that one. I can say a lot about that, that study. Um, but this one, it's a little bit better in that they have actually, um, modeled a range of conditions and they are reporting the, you know, most common, um, improvement. Cause usually when you see these kind of results, you just hear, oh, you know, we'll get 32% improvement. But um, when you look into the details, it's like, okay, if you purposely arrange your wind turbines in the most, <laughs> the, the worst possible way, um, then you could see 32% less energy compared to the ones, you know, arranged in the best way. So I guess the first place to, <laughs> to start with responding to this is that um, wind farm developers do already consider the effect of the other turbines in the wind farm when they're locating them, right? We all know sure. that wind turbines extract energy from the wind and, you know, the, wind, the energy in wind is uh, it's kinetic energy, which means, you know, you can't, they're not like consuming air molecules. So the only way to remove energy from the wind is to um, remove wind speed. You know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's half half MV squared, right? The um, kinetic energy. So you got to you got to take some of that that V V out. And we all have known since you know the start of um, modern wind turbines over a hundred years ago that that's how wind turbines work. And so therefore, necessarily behind a wind turbine there is lower wind speed. So um, yeah, every time this is reported, it's always like, oh my god, wind turbines. Uh, it's been found in this breakthrough study that wind turbines remove energy from the wind. Who who knew? Um, and it's always like a little bit offensive because like, how dumb do you think that this whole industry of wind energy engineers are that it hadn't occurred to, to wow. us that wind speeds are lower behind wind turbines. So that out of the way and yeah, bearing in mind that we already don't just line them up directly, um, you know, in a row 
uh, with the right. wind turbines in the direction of, of the wind. Yeah. That said, wake steering, uh, which is what I usually call this effect of, you know, you um, you don't consider the control of each turbine individually. Um, so, you know, the normal way to operate a wind farm is that each wind turbine has a controller. It knows what its wind speed is and um, how it should operate to get the most energy that it can. And so the ones in, in depending on where the wind direction is, the front row of wind turbines will be different. But, you know, the front front row wind turbines are probably doing something different to what the back row wind turbines are because they're seeing different wind speeds, different um, turbulence and that sort of thing. But the new mm. thing with wake steering is that you you don't optimise every individual turbine's output. You optimise the output of the whole wind farm as a whole. And so you can, right. um, if you do have some wind turbines, you know, considering the current wind direction, if you have got some that are, uh, really seeing the wake of the turbine in front, if there happen to be a few of them lined up downwind, then you can tilt the front one a little bit so it's not getting the maximum energy it can because you tilt it slightly out of the wind, but then its wake moves away from the turbine behind it. So the turbine behind will get more energy, and if you do that cleverly, then you can end up with more energy from the wind farm as a whole. And yeah, so this article is saying that's that's you know in normal conditions a few percent, which is in line with what I've heard before. Um, so I think it's exciting because it's a way to get more out of an existing asset without having to install, you know, like new wind turbines or change the blades or anything like that. But it's not it's not easy, and we're not seeing like you know this idea has been around for I'd say around ten years or so, um, and you don't see a huge huge take up of it because it's complicated and it affects, you, you know, the wind turbine structure right. is not designed for these weird kind of off, <laughs> off axis operation. Is it really certified? Are you really going to get the lifetime? OEMs aren't so keen to mess around with that. Right. And, and Joel, it, at Wind Power Lab, you guys deal with mm-hmm. broken blades all the time and fatigue mm-hmm. issues and, and the manufacturing variations that come out of the OEMs, it seems like if I'm not going to point my turbine directly into the wind, and they're talking about in some cases up to 20 degrees of of, uh, orientation away from the wind, it seems like I'm putting a lot of extra maybe flexing loads, bending loads, fatigue loads onto my blades. When does that come into play versus the extra power you may generate? I would say that if you see someone doing this commercially, I would almost guarantee you they're out of their OEM warranty period. That's the that's the first thing okay. I would think, uh, because no, I don't yeah. I don't believe, and I could be wrong. Any OEM, feel free to contact us and let us know. But I don't believe that any OEM is going to say, "Yeah, do that. You should be fine." Um, you know, in <laughs> in some of the things we've read is you know up to twenty degrees out of the wind. I mean, think that the structural loads that are placed on the blades and the bearings of you know pitch bearings and the yaw bearings, everything that's yes. just. Eh, it's, it's just not quite – they're not designed to do that, right? So I would say, first off, they're probably out of their warranty. Right. Second, if I was an insurance company, I would be looking into that as far as uh, putting some um, more bullet points in my policies because I wouldn't want to be on the hook for sure. someone changing things up and possibly folding a blade over or messing up a bearing. You know, like you guys know, a hub bearing goes, that's, that's – you're not going to get that for the same price of a cup Big of problem. coffee, right? So no. I would say 
there's there's some things you know tipping i would think tipping one and two percent and stuff and maybe there's some studies out there i know like we were talking about earlier windesco does this commercially um they have their swarm swarm uh technology and whatnot um i would be curious to hear uh, from them as far as uh, if you're moving one percent have you have they done studies as has a certification body looked at this and said yeah it looks good to us or um you know what is the right. the max that we can start moving things around because you go outside of the um, OEM's, um, you know, shutoff uh, wind speeds, and then you got to idle them anyways and try to make them, you know, not be affected by wind. And it's the That's same right. concept. Well, it, we've worked. Joel and I have worked with a company that does yaw alignment, and so there's a big emphasis mm-hmm. on actually making sure your turbine is pointed the way it's supposed yeah. to be. Like, yeah, like to re- checking to that reduce out vibration is a, is, a, is a big deal. Yeah, it makes the, the turbine live longer. So you, there are a couple of companies, the one we know in particular is based up in Canada, but Mm-hmm. They're out running around checking yaw alignment all the time, and you'll say, "Oh man, these some of these turbines are crazy out of alignment." So, if if, if most companies are already out of yaw alignment and it's damaging components, and that's the story that I hear very consistently, doing it on purpose doesn't seem like the right way to go, unless you have some assurances <laughs> yeah. from the OEM that it's going to work. Because you know the yeah. other part about this, which is a little upsetting, is there's a company called Windesco, which is based in Massachusetts and not very far from us, and there are they are a stone's throw from MIT. They've been working on this problem for several years. And I think they have a mm-hmm. better handle on what can and can't be done. But yet you don't read the news article about those guys. When Desco right. is out there doing it, MIT is talking about it, you know, in some sense sort of talking about it and self-promoting, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But there's already players in that space that are already probably five years out in front of what MIT yeah. just did. Not to say what MIT is wrong. It's good to have more data, but it does seem a little bit odd that MIT didn't mention Windesco. Yeah, you know, the speaking of, uh, you know, the experience that we have with some of the uh, groups out there doing alignments, I know that in some of the reports that I've seen from them as well, the increase in energy output that they're trying to gain from the wake steering adjustments here. One percent, two percent, three percent. Sometimes those guys are seeing that one point one percent, two percent, three percent increase in power output just by getting them aligned perfectly. Because in the vibrations, mm, right. um, they're they're losing that right. So if it was my wind farm, I would rather say, guys, let's go and align them perfectly and get that extra one percent or two percent, rather than let's throw them out of alignment and see if we can do the same thing. The, the academic research it, it has a place, and this MIT research, you know, it's it's, it's validated sure. with a real wind farm, so that's you know a big step up from most True. of the studies of this kind that I see. My problem is almost never with the research, and if you read the paper itself, they're not, you know, they're title of their paper won't be 30% improvement over, you know, idiotically designed (laughs) normal wind farm. Um, It'll be very nuanced and accurate and probably it may well even reference all this other work. It's the reporting that's a problem. And, uh, I mean, it's a real challenge to get, um, you know, report engineering in a way that people can get excited about without being misleading. It's, you know, it's a challenge that – that I have with my my channel and maybe why my channel is you know one tenth the side of, of the size of some of the the more sensational ones, but um, yeah, I, I think that it's not the research that's a problem. And I also wanted to point out I did a live stream on um, on all different ways of grouping wind turbines uh, way back maybe maybe it was earlier this year. I'm just looking at the date. It was yeah November twenty twenty one. 
Um, and there was one really cool resource that I included in that in the description to that, which I'll, I'll send um, to include in the show notes here. But there's this DTU simulation called Top Farm. It's a Python code, but you can you can run it. I even mm-hmm. I'm not you know like real computer (laughs) programming type i'm a bit of a hack but even i managed to install it and you can you can run your own wind farm optimization um and you you know you can choose where what parameters that you know are important and you're trying to you know improve the financials of the wind farm overall so that includes you know trying to get more power out of it but also trying to you know minimize the cost of you know um, power lines that need to connect these things up and that sort of thing so I just thought that was that was really cool. If people, you know, think it sounds really exciting. It's it's nice to be able to go and play around and see what kinds of um, yeah, what what kind of changes you can make that make a difference, and also evidence that this is something that we knew about in the industry before this this latest yeah. article. If you don't believe me, <laughs> I would like to shout out to the person who signed the contract at Dominion for forty two percent uptime, and when they have when they get near their trailing three year average and they're at forty one. Call Windesco and have them crank it up one percent just for that year, so you don't get burned. Keep that in your back pocket. You're welcome. Yeah. And a separate shout out to uh, Lars and Yannick Benson with yeah. AC883. They're the guys that we have talked to about yaw alignment, and they're they're doing it quite a bit. Those two good guys, and they're out yeah. hustling and and making the wind turbines perform a lot better. So it, it's mm-hmm. you know. Shout out to those guys. If you're interested in your alignment, just go to ac883.com and you can find out a lot more about it. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. All right. So the folks at Sandia have been working on a vertical wind turbine and in particular a vertical wind turbine that is floating offshore. So they, they've they come up with this concept. In fact, they patent this design. Uh, and we'll put it in the show notes, but it's essentially, it looks like a uh, bow from a bow and arrow. So you got this kind of curved blade and there's a cable that reaches the top of the blade and pulls it down. So you get this bow-like structure with this blade and that cable ties down sort of to the base. And so now you have a vertical axis wind turbine and you have three of these things. And you can adjust the tension on those cables, pulling those blades to essentially stabilize the thing. And they've been working on software to control this vertical axis wind turbine with these, this unique blade system. And they've got the software because they're, they're trying to figure out how to, how to handle the waves and the turbulence and all the things going to be thrown at a, a floating platform. So even though it'd be anchored down to the seafloor, it's still going to be bobbing and moving and tilting and stuff. Uh, I guess my first question is, is this design something that would theoretically be used? Because it's all right right now is in theory. I don't have not seen a production. One of these I'm looking for some I was looking online for some in like a a blade sample or or something, a test that's been going on. I haven't really seen anything, but Sandia seems to be progressing down this line. Is this something that we really need is a vertical axis wind turbine that, that sort of floats offshore? Maybe I um, so vertical axis wind turbines and they're not new at all. Um, and in the you know seventies, eighties, early nineties, there wasn't really a 
you know, industry agreement that horizontal access was the only way to go. There was plenty of serious True. research effort, serious development money spent on um, vertical access wind turbines. And the most successful and biggest of those looked a lot like this this one. The egg, egg beater shape is um, what uh, it's, it's commonly yeah. known as. It's got... Um, there's some advantages to vertical axis wind turbines and some disadvantages relative to horizontal axis. And for onshore applications, it kind of just worked out that the the downsides to the vertical axis wind turbines were so much more than the advantages. And so it kind of died out that, you know, evolution killed that. But now we've got new right. constraints, new design requirements for offshore that do make it seem attractive again. So there, there are a lot of companies that are looking at vertical access wind turbines for offshore and especially floating offshore. One of the main things is that the centre of gravity is much lower because you can put the generator at the bottom of the turbine. And so, you know, right. like, um, I don't know if I... Right. How many people... Big advantage. Show versus um, listen to it, but I've got a little wind turbine here, a horizontal axis one, and I mean it just looks wrong that that would float, right? Like it, it looks like it just wants to tip over. Um, whereas with the the, I don't have a model of a vertical axis one, but you know it looks like an egg beater, and the oh. the mass is all down the bottom. I, I could should have I should have planned ahead and brought brought a whisk with me. Um, <laughs> Yes. For the show and tell session Clearly. today, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So you put the the generator at the bottom, which makes it you know just inherently more stable. You need a smaller um, floating platform to keep it upright. Um, that's the number one biggest thing. There's a you know there's a few other differences, but I'd say that's the the biggest. Um, so. <laughs> Joel's going, yeah, it looks looks like that, like a lolly. Why do you have that? What, what is that? I don't even know. Sorry, your kid set it up. My, one of my nieces set it on my desk. Well, it's kind of like that. Yeah, if you're yeah, watching cool. on YouTube, it just looks just like that. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean – there is a reason to to go that way, um, you know, as we, we really want to get more floating wind out there if we're going to be able to expand offshore wind to areas beyond, you know, the good, the good offshore sides are already filling up, um, you know, shallow waters that are suitable for for the fixed bottom um, offshore. So floating offshore is something that probably does need to happen or at least it will really help the energy transition if we can install a lot. And so sure. it does make sense. To me, it does make sense to reopen vertical axis wind turbines now. Um, and this Sandia design, it's a, it's taken the, the most successful, um, you know, one from the from the 90s. There's, there's a really huge one um, if you drive <laughs> – if you drive from Montreal to the LM uh, Wind Power Factory in Gaspé and the you know Gaspé Peninsula in Canada, then you will drive past. I think it's called Ca um, Cap de Chat or um, yeah, Chat, the Cape of the Cat, I guess. And there's the world's biggest vertical axis wind turbine is still there. It's unoperational, but you know it's it's just, just huge, big um, egg beater. But one of the big challenges with that design was that um, it you've got this big cantilever um, structure, right? You've got a, a, vertical, right. Um, a vertical tower, the generator's at the bottom, blades at the, at the top, um, and 
you know, the bearings are at the, at the bottom trying to keep this whole structure, you know, uh, aligned. And Stable, that was, right. yeah, that was really challenging. And the way that they solved that um, on onshore was nearly always to put guy wires. So they would um, attach to the top oh. these guy wires that would come out the side like a tent, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's really a lot mm. harder to achieve offshore because you don't just have land to peg <laughs> peg the corners down to so you would need to make your floating right. platform you know big enough to take those guy wires to and then you eliminate yeah. the whole point of <laughs> that you could have a smaller um a smaller floating structure so this is a way of of um you know getting getting around that you know solving the same problem in an offshore appropriate way that's my interpretation and then some of the other stuff um the other reasons why vertical axis wind turbines like didn't succeed um and kind of died out in the 90s was because of um, the the aerodynamic loads change on a horizontal axis wind turbine. It's very simple, you know. They they're the same all the way around, right. and um, it's it's really like an airplane wing. Um, whereas with a vertical axis wind turbine, the wind direction is constantly changing relative to the blade. So they're seeing, you know, they get dynamic stall. Oh, you know, it's it's making lift, 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 and then all of a sudden it stalls, and it's um sudden huge sudden change in um, drag. Um, also the materials at the time they were using aluminium mostly not great in fatigue which is not great for constantly you know you've got constantly changing loads you've got you know severe um, fatigue impacts so some of those have gone away with materials composite materials are much better for fatigue and we've got much better um, simulation tools for um, complicated structures like that and complex loading and then the controls as well. You know, if you can control on the millisecond kind of level, then you can reduce some of that dynamic um, dynamic loading. So, yeah, all of those things, it, things are very different now. We're trying to do something different and we've got much different tools now than we did in the 90s. So I think that's why we're seeing yeah. quite a lot of people pretty interested in vertical axis, especially for floating offshore wind. Yeah, but we've created this new rosemary rule of maturity the rosemary mm-hmm. rule of maturity is everything takes at least 10 years, maybe 20. <laughs> so if Sandia hasn't built one of these yet, no one has, how far no, out would there are, a there are some, wind turbine be? There's a, there's a company, C12. They have a very small prototype um, that they mm-hmm. uh, don't have the actual size on hand, but they have actually made something and stuck it in the ocean and it generated power. But I'm pretty sure it was kilowatts, not, uh, <laughs> you know, and not hundreds of kilowatts. Okay. Megawatts. Um, okay. Yeah, definitely not megawatts. Um, there might be one, one or two others. There's plenty of people that will sell you, <laughs> sell you a vertical axis wind turbine to put in the ocean. I am super skeptical that those will do what they say um, because I believe that we would have seen evidence of it if if they if they did. Well, that's just yeah, that's just it, Rosemary. I don't because it didn't take off the time when it needed to take off. Is it? too late and, and our efforts like Sandia and there's a lot of brilliant people working at Sandia obviously and they're, they're have, they have to think 20 years out in the future that's their role but is it sort of too late to go back and do vertical axis because we, we just don't in like in the United States we don't even have the, the infrastructure to make horizontal wind turbines right at the moment hmm. let alone do something unique and vertical well, is it chance. just too to, to get far in. out 
No, I see it as quite a classic disruptive technology model. I, um, I, I don't see that there's enough of a difference right now that uh, a major manufacturer would have any reason to, to get into this. Right. It's worse technologies, got smaller markets, more expensive. Why would they be interested in, you know, the odd, um, you know, really offshore application where you could install something like this and have someone pay for it, you know, pay, like, Right. Um, someone that recognizes the, that has enough value from it that it's worth paying a lot extra than, you know, compared to a horizontal axis fixed, fixed bottom turbine. Um, but I do see that if you, you know, extrapolate 10, 20 years out into the future, I do see that if it's, if it is possible to get floating offshore wind cheap, that there will be so much of it. And so I, I think that this is the example, you know, people are always asking me what's the next big thing in, in wind. And um, until recently, as I was like, well, you know, wind's, wind's mature, they know how to make it cheap. Everything onshore that I see as, you know, new designs that pop up as an alternative to the just standard three-bladed um, upwind rotor it it never makes any sense right. to me yeah. onshore. It's, it's there's just no the, the benefits aren't there. But offshore, there's a chance. I'm, I'm not saying there. definitely this is going to be the future, but it is the first time where I've been like, yeah, there are some legitimate reasons to to have a look into this. Um, and and vertical axis isn't the only way to solve some of these problems. I'm also interested in multi rotors. Sure. Um, and you know, maybe there's others that I haven't thought of, but I do think that the, yeah, going offshore, like far offshore has changed the design constraints enough that we could expect that, um, a different design could end up being, you know, better suited than, than what we've got now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think it's worth pursuing. I, I wouldn't bet, you know, think, my house deposit on yeah, it, but I, I might bet a little bit. <laughs> what? If I was if I was going to bet bet on the future, well, you know, people say bet your house, but I don't have a house. I have a house deposit, so that's all I can. That's all I can bet. <laughs> well, if if uh, SpaceX can land rockets vertical vertically and reuse them, I'm sure we can figure out how to do vertical axis wind turbines. And it's sort of you're right about the that analogy of it's just the software's better, the control systems are better. We have a lot more tools. We have better technology we have better composites than we did five years ago even it, it, the landscape is open joel i think if any, anywhere that's going to be used in the u.s it's going to be sort of in the louisiana gulf of mexico texas area where hurricanes and things can be really devastating but vertical axis probably has a little bit of an advantage in terms of just being a little more durable and the, i don't know if you saw that recent article i think it's this week where the the, the bomb boem bureau of Energy management. Energy, I think that's ocean right. energy um, management. Or something. Oh yeah, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Right. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> that they they were talking to Louisiana and Texas about offshore wind, and they've got some parcels set off in federal waters. Texas had a lot of response to that, like uh, questioning about the birds and the habitat. Louisiana's like, nah, whatever. <laughs> they didn't Better care. Luck. I thought, yeah. you know why? Well, you know why they don't care? One of the reasons why they couldn't care is maybe they're not going to put turbines in federal waters because they, Louisiana is a place where they've actually put duties or, 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 or uh, a percentage of the income generated by wind turbines offshore would come to the state. And if you put them in federal waters, the feds get to take that money. And I think Louisiana is thinking, well, we're going to keep it in 
little more shallower waters. I'm going to do something that's a little more reasonable for Louisiana. And the state of Louisiana is going to keep all the, the proceeds from that development, where Texas probably hasn't thought of that or is not going to do that. So in this situation where you have a really, really unique environmental constraint, Gulf of Mexico, wind's a little bit lower, get this hurricane thing once in a while, maybe some of those vertical wind turbines make sense. Yeah, I think they, there's definitely a possibility. I mean, of course, if they're off the coast of Louisiana, they go from float, floaters to fixed bottom, right? Because it's shallow the whole coast. Right, they would. Um, they, they totally would, yeah. But just like, I'm looking at this design, um, and it's it basically is, you know, like a bottom, like tension cables turning the blades into basically bowstrings right, or a bow yeah. and then tension cables, right? So a if, a hurric- if a hurricane was to come, you release the tension on them, and then they, exactly. they become neutral. And I think that that's right. – there's something there, and I and I think there's a couple of advantages, uh, you know, that we haven't spoke about with this. Just looking again, I'm looking at the simple picture here. There's no pitch bearings. There's no pitch drive systems. There's no yaw bearing. I mean, there's a technically right. one one big yaw bearing, but it, technically that's the hub bearing, right? So the the structure right. itself, component wise, is a little bit simpler now. The blade structure in composites and, you know, the, the, the dynamic loads like Mo- Rosemary was talking about, you know, with the wind comes through, it change, everything changes um, and you get the weird stall and, and some other things. That's that's a bit more complex, not a bit more. It's a lot more complex than a standard blade is. Um, yes. And understanding how what the life of the level, what the life of these would be uh, based on you know standard operation. And then also getting into if you're going to put them into an area where there is hurricanes or some you know deeper offshore uh, wilder weather, uh, I don't know what the how they'll last, but but I think it's definitely worth well, investigating. Well, it's, it's up to people like yeah, I mean, it's up to people like Rosemary who are designing the the blade structure to get it right, right? And you know, it's sort of like fifty fifty. I think is it's it's too new. If I was designing an airplane to do that, I would think, oh, man, my structures guys are really good. And if I had a rosemary on my airplane team, I'd think, oh, this is – but it's hard. <laughs> I know how difficult those things are, right? So even if you got the best people on it, it's still a really, really difficult thing to do. I've watched airplanes break in half and tested they weren't supposed to break in half. And, and those yeah. sort of things like, oh, man, we missed X, right? It gets super complicated. Yeah, you and need it, a really it, good reason. Design, you need a really good reason why yeah. you would bother. And I mean, what you said, Joel, about the, you know, the, the simplicity of the components that can be re- removed, that is the motivation for at least dozens of vertical axis wind turbine companies that have come and gone over the last 20 years. And none of them have actually been able to make something cheaper than a horizontal axis one. So, you know, it, um, yeah, that, that's one of the things with vertical axis uh, wind turbines. It's, it's a technology where if you think about it for like one minute, it's just so obvious that these are better. And if you think about it for five minutes, it's like, oh, wait, but, you know, if you try and get that improvement, then you're going to make this thing harder. And if you think about it for 10 minutes, you're like, oh, yeah, actually, no, um, I don't think I'll do that. So (laughs) uh, I think it's been pretty well (laughs) documented on shore that um, I won't say that every avenue has turned out to be a dead end. And there is one company, Agile Wind Power, who have a 750 megawatt vertical axis wind turbine prototype. And their their idea is that they're going to control... Uh, seven hundred fifty kilowatt, nearly nearly a megawatt. Thanks, thanks for pulling me up. <laughs> yeah, nearly nearly a megawatt. So you know, usually I, you talk megawatt scale, and I'm always adding them in because it's not quite a megawatt, but um, right. at least it's in the ballpark. And their their 
innovation is that they're using, um, yeah, it's the controls. So they're going to change the uh, just the angle of the attack of attack of the blades to, um, yeah, get right. get rid of this dynamic store problem. Uh, and I mean, they've had they've had teething problems. Mm. They're a, a startup, but I wouldn't totally eliminate that as a viable option. And maybe they will eventually pivot to, you know, to floating offshore because uh, I still don't see a huge market for, for that. I'd, and even they, if when you talk to them, they don't say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to take over all of these sites that are currently being developed with horizontal axis wind turbines. We'll have the, our vertical axis one in the future. They're saying this is for places where a horizontal axis turbine doesn't make sense because, you know, of, of noise or because of, I don't know, access problems or right. turbulence or something. So, um, yeah, it's definitely it's a technology to watch, but. I think if vertical axis wind turbines are going to do something big and exciting, it'll be in floating offshore in, yeah, 15, 20 years. There you go. That's my time frame. <laughs> <laughs> the, one, the one place that I have seen vertical axis wind turbines in public working is just outside of the Denver airport. And they have these vertical axis wind turbines that are about the size of, I don't know, maybe they're not that big. They're only about the size of a stop sign or something. But they have them installed on the median. And they have the blades that are kind of like like this, right? And yeah. they're utilizing. I mean, of course, the front the front range of Colorado is windy anyway, so there's always some wind there. Right. But the reason they're one of the reasons that's cool that they're there. If you guys have ever stood on the side of an interstate highway when cars go by, you know, take blow your hat right off. Well, the traffic is going like this, and so the turbines are in the middle of the median on the barrier wall, spinning with the traffic wind as well. So, I mean, they're probably enough power being generated there to like make a cup of coffee but and are it's, they collecting it's a cool that power concept. or are they just yeah, yeah, yeah. spinning yeah. like yeah. When, like yeah. the you know toys no they they're connected no, they're to something co they're collecting i don't know what they're powering with yeah they're connected <laughs> to something but i don't know i don't know what but yeah. then again if you know anything about dia dia airport there might be some aliens living underneath it or you know well that's what i was saying <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's a way for colorado to slow down the drivers are actually taking energy from the cars and slowing <laughs> it down you know yeah. somebody's thinking that you know, I oh, guarantee there's a website all the time. devoted to that yes that, that yes yeah come on because <laughs> that's another common yeah. idea that people have is um yeah we should put wind turbines everywhere mm -hmm. by by roads and then someone will respond oh you idiot that means it's just coming from the car which yeah, I, I think it's anyway. We shouldn't get into that. It, it's it's not so so straightforward <laughs> to me how you would go about analyzing that, that one way or the other. But yeah, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> hey, it's better than people in West Texas thinking that it's hot because the wind the fans are turned off. <laughs> no that offense, West true. Texas. I I love you guys. Yeah, we, but, I, lo I love West Texas, <laughs> I've seen but it I have before. seen that same comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Michigan State has been hard at work, at least a couple of the the uh, uh, professors there, and <laughs> they've developed this technology, which is using a combination of glass fiber, or I guess you could just use carbon fiber too, and a uh, some synthetic and plant based polymers. So they're they're rosemary, as you well know, they're creating these long polymer chains where you get strength from, but they're using some plant-based, some synthetic, and they're then they put in fiberglass or carbon fiber into this thing to create these composite structures. Now, some marketing person was genius here. He said, well, it's recyclable, right? You can break them, these polymers down into their independent smaller chains and reuse them, which, which is great, right? I mean, it's a recyclable quote-unquote resin system and you can pull the fiber out of them too so you can 
in theory, we use them. Well, uh, one of the professors, I assume, uh, yeah, it's a uh, John Dorgan, chemical engineer, <laughs> Michigan State, uh, said, well, you can create this circular economy from these, these polymers because you can break them down and reuse them in infinitum. They can just com- be used all the time. Well, what can you make this plant-based uh, polymer into? Well, you can make it into gummy bears. You can make it to food-grade quality stuff. And, and so essentially it goes like this. I make a wind turbine. I have this wind turbine blade. Eventually, after 20 years, I need to recycle it. I break it down to its independent components. I put the synthetic stuff in a barrel. I take the fiberglass out and put it over here. And then I take the remaining part of it and make it into candy. <laughs> make it into gummy bears. So online, you see these gummy bear images. And I got to say, guys, who is eating things that have been on a wind turbine it it indicates like the people responsible have never been around wind turbines to see how dirty they are (laughs) rosemary would you like to describe what typically happens to a wind turbine over its lifetime well i mean it's not so dissimilar to if you you know you buy a new um plastic piece of garden furniture and you know maybe you'd be happy to lick it (laughs) when you first got it home but (laughs) After it's been in your garden for a year or two, are you still happy to lick that? I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't want to eat a no. gummy bear that um, was recycled from a wind turbine, and I, I don't really see why it's necessary either. And I also don't agree that that's a circular economy because I, I don't know how they're retrieving that after its second life as a gummy bear through your digestive system, but I don't want any part of that. <laughs> well, gummy bears are not digested. I think that's what they're saying. It's just passing through <laughs> At least these ones. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, uh, those would totally be, right? It, just, it could be infinitum. <laughs> and is there we were talking is that a legitimate really. use for it then? I mean, you could also just shred a normal wind turbine blade and eat that. It's inert. Um, is that recycling? You you know? <laughs> no. Yeah. Do not do that. No, no, no. Never listen to what engineers have to say about eating things, right? We're, we're, no, we're not the right group. There's, a, we're clearly- there's one of those Guinness record type chasers who um, I think he ate an entire aeroplane. Is, isn't that a, a thing that's happened? There's some guy that just eats random stuff. And yeah, if you chop, it's not going to, you chop something inert up and, no. and eat it, then it's not, it's not going to do you any harm. I, I, I guess I should should put the disclaimer that I'm not telling you to go out and just, you know, eat non, non-food <laughs> eat items. But um, I can't see why you couldn't, <laughs> like, <laughs> couldn't make fiberglass pellets out of a rec- recycled wind turbine blade and, and, and eat them. And, um, you know, I think that that would be very similar to making gummy bears out of a recycled um, wind turbine blade yeah. and, and eating them. Mm. I don't see the difference. That's That's my point. But don't do it at home. I think you'll see them. <laughs> You'll see them at a, in, in the next few years, they will be at a trade show and they'll have packages of these gummy bears Ooh. and they'll be handing them out. Here, try this. Try this wind turbine blade. Try this wind turbine there, blade. There should, right. <laughs> there should be a rule. If you make a food product out of a recycled material, you got to make it in the shape of what it was. Just so I know what I'm biting this was into. A wind turbine you know what I'm blade. saying? I think yeah, the guy, then it should be. Right. Go look at your go look at your vehicle. Yeah, go look at your vehicle after after a springtime ride through the mountains by your house, Alan, and see all the bugs on the front. That's exactly <sighs> what the leading edge of a wind turbine blade looks like. So, 
Maybe that's maybe what they that's should make what, him in the I mean, shape in of the coatings. Uh, like you can, gummy bears existed before, you know, they became some sort of chemical concoction, right? It, sugar and gelatin and some sort of fruit flavoring will give you a, a gummy bear if you get the, the ratios right. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's some organics there. Maybe it's the bugs is <laughs> is where that nutritional content comes from. Maybe it's a, a, there you go. <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> gummy bears now with protein, yeah. <laughs> protein fortified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm always excited about recyclable resins. I think it's a cool idea, right? I, I think if you can make a plant-based recyclable resin system, there is a huge advantage to that. And I'm all for it. I guess it's just in the marketing of it. It makes it sound silly. Because I think this is where recycling cycle composite parts are going to go in the next couple of years, not in rosemary's you know age of maturity for wind energy stuff it's not 20 <laughs> years out it is probably three four years out siemens gamesa is always uh, flying blades that are recyclable right now that's happening so the the more very the more types of resins we can see the the different kinds of chemistries involved we're going to hone it in on something that's really good and really recyclable and i think mm-hmm. we'll take one of the major complaints about wind turbines off of the table it's the blade recycling, bearing of blades, blades falling, all those things that comes off the table as a as a discussion point. It makes wind energy a lot more palatable for a lot of the palatable. economies, especially in the United States, to swallow. <laughs> yeah, well, sorry. I threw it in there. I didn't know if anybody would notice. But yeah. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And also subscribe to Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, where you see all kinds of fabulous renewable energy projects discussed with uh, worldwide experts. We will see you, though, next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.